Hey everyone, it's Kevin Dong here. Thanks again for listening to Mac Emerge Podcast. We appreciate your support and please feel free to spread the word and share this resource to your colleague, friends, and trainees. Before we move on to our main segments, we as a team want to get better and produce great quality resources for you. And really, the one way to do that is to gather feedback so we can continue to adjust and amend our podcast to fit your needs. We have sent out emails on a MacMerge podcast survey that we've created. Additionally, the survey can be found on our website, and you can find that by searching MacMerge Podcasts on Google, and it should be the first link up. Otherwise, you can also check out our show notes on the Apple app, and you'll find a direct link there as well. This survey will really help us make this resource better for you, so please fill it out and continue to listen to our show. Thanks again for all your love and support, and we will see you First day of every month on Mac Emerge Podcast. Now, cue the music. Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Happy New Year! Medical New Year, that is. Most people know that July 1st is an important day. Not only is it Canada Day, but it's also the day that we have a whole bunch of new people join us in the ranks of the Macamurge community. We are so excited to welcome all the new FR, CPC, and CCFPEM residents who are joining our family. Although we can't have a barbecue this year, we've assembled this podcast with you in mind. So sit back and relax. Crack open your beverage of choice, iced tea is mine, and listen up. You'll hear some really cool stuff that was assembled just for you. And our main segment is definitely an inspiration for us all. So once more, just in case you didn't hear it, welcome to the family. We're excited to have you amongst us. All right. Thanks, uh, everyone, Ian, for joining in uh, with the next episode of MacMerge Podcast. I'm here with uh, Kashif Prasada, uh, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, bringing a startup approach to a medical crisis. And we're going to kind of look at this from the dual goals of highlighting some of the local grassroots efforts uh, that he's been involved in uh, in preparedness for the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and then off of that, provide people with a general framework uh, with respect to applying a startup approach to a crisis and, and also just in general. Um, so maybe Cash, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself, uh, letting us know what you, what you do in medicine and maybe your life before medicine. Thanks, Brendan. Um, so I'm Cash Prasada. I'm an emergency doctor. I work at uh, Brampton Civic Hospital as an emergency doctor also, you know, had an interesting journey to medicine. I was actually an undergrad weighing computer science and medicine. Um, then the crash happened, the dot-com crash, and then I chose medicine. And I completely far- forgot about computers for 20 years. And then I uh, got bitten by the startup bug about four years ago, pursued uh, some ideas and wasted a lot of time and money and tears on some of them. <laughs> now working on one project, I'm hopefully, it's kind of like a social media aggregator thing that should hopefully be about out in about a month. It was kind of inspired by the foam movement. 
I was like, you know, why? How can I get Trump off my newsfeed? Um, <laughs> is that possible? Just, just listen. It is possible. I've done it. I've made it. And it just takes all the good creators and the phone people and the good YouTube channels and makes it into feeds that you can customize. So that'll be out in a month or so. But yeah, I'm happy to be here and thanks for the chance to speak. Great. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the projects you've worked on from a startup uh, perspective uh, a little bit later on. Uh, first off, one of the main things we had kind of talked about before recording here is uh, your efforts over the last, I guess, four or five months now with respect to PPE and ventilator procurement uh, and, and dealing with the government. Maybe you can just kind of walk us through uh, what's been going on during the COVID times. So what's interesting is um, I think in Emerge, um, you know, we've been pretty pretty worried about this since, you know, January when the news started coming out. Like I remember getting an email alert late December, I think it was from Ontario, actually, saying that there's unknown virus in Wuhan. And that sort of triggered alarm bells. I think it really, really hit the fan for everybody when the first case appeared at Sunnybrook. And I had the, um, you know, the shift right after that one. And I had the third PUI in Canada, basically. Everyone was kind of uh, scared and freaked out, but kind of, you know, grinning and bearing it at the time. And then, you know, started thinking about PPE, like, would there be shortages uh, we were assured, you know, we have a, you know, the province has a large stockpile, everything will be fine. Um, I think there was a controversy around the time at what's airborne and what's droplet. I think now we know better that it's more droplet than airborne. But, you know, n- nothing really happened for about two months. We didn't really do anything to prepare. And, you know, the assumption, I think, in our community, in the medical community, is that the government knows what they're doing. Administration knows what they're doing. And we clearly knew that's false now. You know, you know around March 12th happens... The state of emergency declared a week before that, um, I was working with a group of physicians trying to get the attention of the cabinet, um, federal and provincial, trying to get them to listen, like, look, in China and Italy, they're running out of ventilators. Uh, People are dying, you know, just waiting to be seen. And so we managed to get an audience with uh, both the provincial and the federal cabinet members and they presented it. I think one thing I learned was that the highest decision-making people like um, are have very limited bandwidth when it comes to dealing with complicated issues. I think the entire federal cabinet was tied up with the repatriation flights. Mm-hmm. The provincial, provincial cabinet was tied up with PPE. Um, so it was really hard to um, get heard and listened to. But I think eventually we made an impact. But at you know, it takes time for them to react as well. And, you know, we, I think everyone ran out of surgical masks and N95s. So got together a bunch of people um, on a WhatsApp group of all places. And that grew into this group called Conquer COVID-19, which ended up growing like wildfire. Like we had, you know, every few minutes, someone else would join the chat group. They would be like an exec in some giant company. We had execs, I think, from Bombardier, the banks, um, Enbridge, all kinds of people bringing their expertise in. I think an advantage of everyone sitting at home when the crisis happened and everyone lending their expertise. And then it quickly mushroomed. We got media attention. We raised money. Uh, we got a huge donation from the founders of Shopify. And then actually then we got Haley Wickenhauser and Ryan Reynolds as our celebrity uh, endorsers. And they actually, I used to, I was the mascot talking to media before they came. So I, I gave my spot to Ryan Reynolds. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's much better at drawing the audiences than I am. <laughs> He's pretty good at that. That's amazing. <laughs> it, grew, it, it grew crazy. Like we ended up uh, raising a few million dollars and buying millions and millions of masks and getting them to the front line before uh, the government could react. Basically, yeah, 
Yeah, interesting. Because I, I remember from our hospital perspective, I, there was definitely the sense of alarm that it was kind of everyone for themselves to some degree. And the hospital was doing what they could, but there's limited communication from higher ups on the provincial government. And we really had no idea where we were going to stand in two, three days, uh, even at times. Yeah, I think that was the same time that different hospitals were doing PPE drives, which is kind of like the beggar thy neighbor approach, you know, try to get everything you can before the other hospitals do. Yes, exactly. I think we um, we managed to get some through. I have a friend that uh, that works in IT, and so we managed to get some uh, kind of crappy grade uh, surgical masks uh, from China through him, kind of before everything started to lock down. So, but yeah, it was amazing how we just it was kind of uh, you know all hands on deck. Just we were fortunate to have great departmental leadership, but there was definitely the sense in the group that we could not trust government to come through for us in a timely fashion. That's for sure. Exactly. And I think, you know, we had a bizarre phenomenon where like you had uh, IPAC personnel saying, you know, masks aren't necessary. It's, you know, you shouldn't even wear it uh, in the hospital until it all changed when Atul Kawande had his piece in the New Yorker. And that gave us at our institution the sort of the impetus to sort of require masking for all visitors and staff in, in the hospital. And I think that's one of the reasons we haven't had that many infected staff, actually. Yeah, I think one of the one of the difficulties with communication I found is that uh, there were so many mixed messages from hospitals, from different governments, more local, higher up, provincial, federal, and it was really hard to kind of get a sense of what the evidence was. It was just almost like an inf- information overload to try and sort through. It was, it was exactly uh, and like you know it's and then for us like we have you know medical and scientific training. Can you imagine being a policymaker trying to sort through all this. You know you only have like you're you've been a lawyer, a teacher, or whatever, and you, you know how do you sort through all the conflicting information coming your way? Yeah. And, and so, how did you, how did you kind of get your foot in the door when it came from uh, government? Because I think I think you had mentioned before that you spoke to a cabinet member. And- yeah. So actually, you know, it, this, in this kind of situation, it's like you know the world is ending, the asteroid is heading to Earth. You know, like you pull out all the stops, you call all your friends, you find out who donated to who and who can you know get an audience with who, um, and you just pull every connection that you have and. You know, luckily, um, a friend of ours who worked for somebody could get us an introduction to a minister who was very close to Trudeau, and that that worked in our favor. And then mm-hmm. for the provincial cabinet, talked to um, an MPP who who's on cabinet um, who could bring it to the agenda and then get it spoken to. So you just have to you know work everyone you know because you know there's in our lifetimes I don't think there'll be any other, any crisis bigger than this, and so this is the time to you know call up the friends you knew from undergrad or kindergarten or (laughs) school or wherever and just call you know just pull every last connection you can every strand i guess an advantage to having social media in in the current day and age exactly and and so uh, so you managed to get i think i think you'd mentioned 2.5 million dollars worth of masks from china you got some n95s quite a few probably donate from industry and lots of uh, from donation drives like regular folks dentists um a lot of other professionals a nuclear plant donated as well yeah and, and specifically with ventilators, what, what specifically was going on with that? So we got, the government uh, made a deal, I think, with GE to buy you know, several hundred more. The stockpile from SARS was about 200 ventilators. Mm-hmm. And I think the EPI predictions were showing that, you know, I think it all depended on when you would lock down. If we had locked down a week later, we probably would have had, had a disaster scenario. Yeah. But we didn't. So we locked down when, you know, there's about 10 deaths across Canada. So that kind of was a great point to do it because we never exceeded our ICU capacity. Yep. Um, so, yeah, we did. Um, I think pressure did lead to the government ordering more. I think we also um, there was a huge rush to try to get industry partners to get blueprints 
of a ventilator to start making here. And so the government approached as far, I think we knew that they approached some of the larger European companies. Um, some of them either refused or gave older uh, schematics. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, um, I think, one company in Brampton that agreed to build uh, ventilators under license, and I think that's happening right now. Yep. Um, so I think it really, the whole national component comes out, like the Canadian companies are the ones that really came forward yep. to really uh, step up and offer their intellectual property, whereas the foreign companies uh, didn't. And that comes up in the drug piece that I'm going to talk to you about later, was that, you know, really the globalization is kind of falling apart now, and we really are have to look out for ourselves and and many of these critical areas, especially PPE and drugs. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think, I I think we spoke about the story before that uh, probably a lot of the listeners have have read about it. It was kind of like the wild West in China when they were doing uh, exports, right? People essentially robbing, (laughs) robbing planes before they're being loaded to. (laughs) Oh yeah. There's, um, there's crazy stories. Like other thing is after the PPE shock happened, the supply shock happened, all of these crazy weird middlemen started to contact me and my colleagues. Like, uh, you know, it's like almost like someone coming up to you and, you know, whipping open their jacket pocket and saying, Hey, Hey buddy, I got these masks here. (laughs) I can get you a good deal. Good price. (laughs) So maybe we could talk a bit about the drug sourcing issue. So, so you mentioned globalization is a, an issue with PPE procurement when there's an actual crisis and everyone's kind of looking out for themselves. And so, so what did you find out about drug sourcing? And I know there's a lot of uh, risk of uh, potential shortages with critical medications uh, during the time. Yeah. So this, um, I think it's not very well known outside of the critical care community, but you know, we're running out of um, all of the paralytics um, the opioids are also the IV opioids, um, ketamine, and um, I think uh, some antibiotics too, like are very short. So the supply chains are really convoluted. Like I've been working with a group of um, pharmaceutical um, veterans, uh, lobbyists and stuff and trying to untangle everything and the way, and I think, I think, you know, listeners have probably heard this, like, you know, why is suddenly Keflex disappeared from everywhere? Yeah. Why is it so hard to get, you know, X drug at a certain time? And it turns out, like, supply chains are pretty convoluted. All drugs are made from what are called um, active pharmaceutical ingredients, APIs. Yep. Um, and then they're processed into, like, pills and packaged. So the APIs are usually made in China and India. The pill production and packaging happens in India. And then it's shipped over here. And then what happened early on in this crisis was that India banned the export of a lot of APIs. So that caused a huge um, shock to the supply chain. Yep. And you know, this offshoring only happened in the last 10 to 15 years. Like a lot of this stuff was made in the West, in North America and Canada even um, recently. Drugs specifically? Drugs specifically. Yeah. So one, one concern we had was that, you know, let's say we find one of these, you know, biologics is uh, effective, like something like the IL-6 inhibitor, like Actemra or the IL-1 like uh, Anakinra or, or, you know, any other um, medication that might be useful. Like we would lack the capacity to make it just like we found with PPE. Yep. Um, and if, you know, a formerly friendly country like America decides to keep it all for itself, then we're, we're screwed, basically. Yeah. Which is definitely so, a foreseeable possibility in that kind of situation. And again, this is another issue. You'd think the government would be looking at it, but like, you know, they're, they are completely tied up with trying to get supply. So if you guys use propofol or ketamine now, you might notice that the labels are all German, like, because they're, they're basically making deals with allied countries to get what we can here. Um, and they're, they're scrambling. And you might, yeah, you might notice that the vial concentrations are different now. And they can't, they're so busy that they can't look a year or a year and a half ahead yeah. as things are going. So this is another thing where you can't count on um, the the higher ups to really do it. So you have to look after it yourself. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. Specifically with ketamine, we realized we were wasting like, I don't know, 80% of each of these single-use vials uh, because the, the concentrations were so high. Um, and so we had to work with pharmacy to figure out a way to essentially have them aliquot out of what were single-use vials before so we could actually store it for a few days at a time. That's a great idea, actually. Yeah, we weren't sure if that was possible, but it, it did happen eventually, so that's good. Do you, do you put them in uh, little bags, like uh, 100cc bags or something? Um, yeah, or? I think they do. I think I think pharmacy keeps it and then they'll aliquot, uh, I forget how many milligrams at a time, but a reasonable amount for procedural sedation or RSI, and then they, they keep the rest, which you know three or four other doses that uh, would usually be wasted so they are able to keep those for so the there's actually hope um in um admin in alberta they're making a facility to make propofol locally oh yeah yeah that's quite a complicated drug to make but yeah i think they've already started uh, production already huh. so and you know we made some inquiries with uh, government sources in, in ontario they're very keen on on this idea so we might actually see some movement on it so we're very happy to that just just happened today so we're very happy about that oh interesting and so, so with all these complexities, um, with supply chain issues and and pandemic uh, concerns, how do we move forward with this to prevent uh, some of these shocks from happening again? I think you know um, critical supplies need to be made in Canada. Um, there's no way around that. At least a certain percentage, like let's say surgical masks and N95s. I think you know there should be some kind of law that says 20% of hospital organizational purchases have to come from domestic makers. Yep. That way, the expertise will always stay here. Like N95s, like manufacturers were telling me that it's really, they're very difficult to make. I think they're only just starting now. And one of the auto companies is starting now to make them. Yep. And um, there's like a finely woven mesh that they, that's very hard to synthesize and whatnot. Like you can't let this, um, these methods, technologies uh, be outside the country. Yep. Um, and same thing with the drugs. Like I think, you know, we should be able to make every drug API in Canada. And just have it in reserve, have that uh, knowledge and capacity in reserve, even if we have to pay uh, more for a certain amount, yeah. but at least we could scale up quickly yeah. if we had to. Yeah, well, that makes complete sense. And so moving forward with COVID-19 now as the pandemic evolves. So I think uh, you had mentioned uh, something to me before we started recording on uh, Masks for Canada, local efforts with the universal masking policy. Yeah, so this is another effort um, I got involved with um, with Jen Kwan, who you might know from the regular COVID updates on Twitter. Yep. And, um, and a colleague in uh, Alberta, Joe Vipond, who um, is a big advocate for masks. So it's this, this sort of this bizarre... Um, discordance coming from public health initially masks were bad and now they're okay and now they're recommended but still there's no requirement especially in crowded spaces yep it doesn't make sense to me especially like you know our hospital is in like the hot spot in ontario in peel region yep and um you know only today they're requiring masks in crowded public transit yep you know this this should have happened a month or two ago like and i think you know people will point to a lack of evidence but you know you have to argue like you know a uh, lack of evidence is not absence of evidence. Of um, <laughs> how does that quote go? No, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, it, it, yeah, the. I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear that it reduces the amount of contamination through aerosols or, or droplets, I guess, specifically with the virus, and so. It, it reduced contamination means reduced load and reduced uh, chance of transmission. Yeah. And if you don't have necessarily evidence of reduced transmission within a population, I mean, you kind of have to go with biological plausibility and, and indirect evidence and go from there. Exactly. So like we've, this is a relatively recent group that we formed, but we've, we're physicians across the entire country, um, basically focused on trying to convince uh, municipalities and the public health authorities to require masking in indoor spaces you know, I think universal masking in all places outdoors doesn't make sense, I think. Yeah. We actually organized a debate 
um, which was on this large um, Facebook group um, between pro and anti-mask. And I think it was um, good arguments came. Like I used to be, you know, mask everywhere all the time. But I think the debate and Ken Milne from the Skeptics Guide podcast really made a strong argument that, you know, you have to be a bit more nuanced about these requirements. And I think, you know, if we follow the acronym like all indoors, crowded outdoors, and then transit. Yeah. So ACT, A-C-T is the, is the one that a colleague came up with. Yeah. And, and the rationale for that is more because of supply issues or more just because you want to have it, it appear very logical and rational to the population, which I, I think has been kind of an issue from a messaging standpoint is that some of the lockdown protocols, I think, were not necessarily rationally applied and resulted in people probably being quite annoyed that some of these like, you know, trails being closed where there's almost no one on there at any time, it would piss people off understandably when they have to sit in their house all the time for weeks on end yeah exactly like this is this pandemic is going to drag on for another year like people have to be able to live their lives in some degree of normalcy and you know being in a back trail is definitely not a risk yeah um, but indoor spaces with closed circulation yeah that's a huge risk yeah. i think and so where do you see masking going Should, will it be the cloth masks is, I, I forget what did tam actually recommend non i think it was called non-medical masks okay so that it doesn't take away from the supply chain gotcha. the problem is like we need to convince the public health officers to be a bit more forceful about this yeah. and i think one one strategy we were discussing is that maybe we can go straight to the politicians um, we've got a lot of signatures on open letters from many other specialties like critical care uh, merge um, all kind like hundreds of doctors so far, and we're going to start you know ramping up those efforts mm-hmm. to try to convince municipal authorities that this is the best way to go, even if the public health officers aren't saying it should be mandatory. Yeah. So that's the trick. Like we'd like to get them on board, but the reticence is really hard to explain. Honestly, yeah, that, I really don't understand. That's going to be my next question. What is the what is preventing them from being? stronger on messaging or if not straight out requiring it in, in at least select situations. I, I don't understand it either. I can always speculate. Like I think maybe there's just um, maybe some, you know, it's hard to admit error in any, in medicine, especially like, you know, we're ER docs, so we're wrong all the time when specialists <laughs> come in. So we're, we're pretty humble because we're not, <laughs> we're like, you know, we're involved in the first, you know, few hours of patient's care. And then, you know, then you read the consult notes saying, oh my gosh, I missed this. Really? <laughs> Yeah. So we're used to being we're used to being wrong. Yeah. So I think maybe it might be harder. Like maybe they think they'll lose public confidence if uh, they admit that they were wrong about this. Yeah. It could be. I mean, maybe there are some valid concerns about you know if you if you give the signal that wearing a mask is okay, people will have you know massive parties and have masks on, and that's going to defeat the point. Sure. Yeah. So I you know it's hard to say, but I think you know we should follow countries that are doing much better than we are at least. Yeah. Yeah, fair. And so regarding contact tracing apps, I know you have a bit of knowledge uh, in this area in terms of what other countries are doing and, and how you see our, a role for that. Yeah, so I've um, I've been advising a couple of groups building uh, contact tracing of apps. So the idea was that, you know, we have these, um, unlike previous methods uh, where you had to laboriously interview um, the contact by memory and try to trace everyone they've talked to, why not just use the, the phones that can track your location um, there's a technology called Bluetooth Low Energy, where the phones can sort of ping each other and tell each other that they've met, I guess, and then keep a log of that. So um, there, you know, the, the first uh, country to to do this was Singapore, which two months ago released their Trace Together app, which used the Bluetooth approach. But there were some issues with uh, the app 
being closed by iOS and Android. Yeah. So like to save battery. So the thing you'd have to constantly keep opening the app on your phone. Yeah. No, cool. And then exactly very impractical. And then there's an Oxford model that shows you need like 60% uptake for the app to be useful in the population. And I think only a quarter of people in Singapore used it. And then the other thing is that the outbreak in Singapore happened amongst, you know, foreign migrant workers who live in 32 room dorms <laughs> and they don't have, you know, these up to date smartphones, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like your society's blind spots coming to bite them, right? So Oh, so so do you think do you see that being a practical solution in Canada in terms of the uptake requirements, maybe people having privacy concerns? I think there's a way to do it, but uh I think the contact tracing apps have to be part of a whole ecosystem. Like if you look at how South Korea does it, they combine it with fairly robust contact tracing and they go, they're pretty invasive. Like they'll go through credit card records, CCTV footage and things like that. Like they're very aggressive about it. And I don't know if there's the willingness to do that here. Yeah. Unlikely. There has to be, I think a public debate or a conversation, like some kind of consensus building measure i think to sort of get the public on board temporarily and there has to be a lot of privacy protections yeah definitely one thing was um group at mit um started a gps based app and they open sourced it they had the code ready and then google and apple came out with their own system um, and banned the use of gps tracking which kind of threw a wrench into all the efforts that were up to that point there was another parallel effort in europe that was working on something similar I think one group in Montreal was working on it as well. And sort of Google and Apple just crapped on all of these efforts and just said, You're, everyone's going to do it our way. Yep. So, And I think you know the tech world is still adapting to that. It is fairly privacy protecting, but without GPS, you can't really know where you know the super spreader hotspots are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like, I don't understand like how a tech company can decide how you do public health. But, you know, like the problem with this, like the, the contact tracing apps and the tech involved is it sort of hits at a huge weak spot by government. Like, again, government doesn't have technical people usually who can decide these things. They usually hire these consulting companies for top dollar who farm it out to bottom dollar contractors in India yep. who do like the crappiest job possible <laughs> and then sell it back to you, <laughs> which is basically what, what happened to Alberta. <laughs> they they hired, uh, I think, um, a consulting company. They paid, I think, 700 grand. And they used basically uh, the Singapore app just with a different name. Yeah. And uh, it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) So just before we kind of go into some advice you have for a general approach to startups, um, I I also wanted to highlight a project you have with Ari Greenwald, who probably a lot of people that work at HHS will know. Yeah, exactly. So Ari um, and another colleague, Homer Said, palliative care physician at Brampton, they independently started working on trying to get tablets. So you you remember like there's... Visitors weren't allowed to see patients sort of at the end of life for COVID. And it's like almost these families would say like, it's like their relatives just disappeared. Like they weren't even able to bury them. Like they had to be buried separately. So, you know, this idea of getting tablets into the front lines in the ER so that you could assess and also in the palliative care units was really an important thing to be done. And Ari and Huera and the group were able to sort of secure donations from TELUS, Bell, and a lot of other big companies to sort of get these tablets out and from the public as well. And yeah, there's been, again, like huge, uh, amazing cooperation from private sector companies, like companies who volunteer to help set up the devices to allow us to do remote management of the devices. But yeah, like, again, another great example of, of Canadians coming together to solve something. 
Yeah, great. It's actually interesting timing because I, I just saw an email from Greg Rutledge that so was forwarded along. I think St. Joe's has a, a patient comfort grant they're rolling out for for similar kind of initiatives. I, probably we should chat a bit offline about um, what you've done. With yeah, that. definitely. We have everything written out um, if you guys want it. Yeah, because I, in the Emerge, I think something like that would work quite well because I, I almost, uh, at least at St. Joe's, I know visitor policy is essentially... It's still essentially in lockdown. I think only in the most extreme circumstances can there be visitors for the most part. So, so, uh, so moving along to your startup experience outside of the context of, of COVID, I know you, you had mentioned previous to me a couple uh, projects you had worked on, mistakes you'd made, and kind of some of your experience. <laughs> Grand mistake. I, um, so I started in, so I had some computer science background, but I just left, I didn't really pers- uh, keep my knowledge up to date. And then, you know, about four years ago, I didn't get a job that I wanted. And I had a whole summer where I had nothing to do. And I somehow ended up at a conference in um, Silicon Valley at Stanford uh, that was basically a bunch of physicians really interested in tech and startups. And I was like, I met the people. I don't know if, if you've ever been, but the culture in Silicon Valley is like you're lined up for coffee and the guy behind you taps your shoulder and in 30 seconds tells you his life story and offers to help you with whatever you're working on. <laughs> and that's like the culture of that place. Everyone's really... Really optimistic, yeah. really helpful, yeah. and the ethos is of sharing and 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 collaborating. Yeah, and so so I kind of like I figured you know this is my tribe you know this is the kind of world I want to be in. I want to work on you know interesting ideas and help develop them and build things. Yeah, I st- I had the idea. Hey, people aren't exercising, so why don't I make an app that brings people together that can exercise with your friends and hire a trainer? Yeah, and so I did. I. I hired a company in India to start developing it. I got a grant from the Ontario government. And, you know, I made so many mistakes. Like, first of all, I didn't actually survey anyone about if the idea was useful because, you know, what I really learned was that nobody wants to exercise. <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants to share that they don't exercise. <laughs> nobody wants to hire a trainer. Yeah. And never hire a foreign company to do a tech job when you don't understand the tech yourself. Mm. So... That was a very, these were very expensive lessons. So I went back and I, I relearned a lot of the tech stuff that I'd forgotten, especially the modern ways to do things, which is actually, you know, if you have some computer background, it's not hard to do. And I um, enrolled in a bunch of programs. Uh, the startup infrastructure in Ontario is amazing. Like there's a lot of courses, especially through Mars and the startup hubs. Every region has one. Yep. I think Hamilton's is centered around McMaster. Waterloo's is around Velocity Labs or, and Communitech. Yep. And in Toronto, it's it's Mars, basically. So every region has one, and they can put you through it. Another great program is um, Startup School by a, um, a group in uh, Silicon Valley called Y Combinator. And this company started companies like Airbnb, Dropbox, um, and a few others. So like, And that sort of gave me this approach. And I'll just go over that with you right now. Yeah. So I, I grouped it. I call it uh, I-Step. So the first I is identify. So identify a problem a solution, and then discuss the idea with your colleagues. The second I is invite. Find a co-founder or a team um, because alone you're going to miss a lot of things. You need like sort of that collaborative atmosphere to really to get it going. You know, make it uh, a collaborative model. Um, use modern tools in this collaboration like Slack, Google Drive, Zoom. Keep uh, notes so that you follow up. The next uh, is sprint. So there's a concept sort of agile project management in the business world. This is where you take an idea and you develop it very quickly in a sprint and you build a quick quick and dirty model to like get it going. And then the next step is evaluate and test. So 
uh, that would be like user testing. So they're very big on this in, in uh, startup culture is that you need to validate what you're building with your user base. Is it something that they actually want? Collect feedback and then incorporate it into your um, improvements and then collect metrics as well. The last is P for pivot, because if your idea sucks, you need to rapidly pivot to a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, interesting. So so where in all of this do you actually try and seek out funding and how, if you have an idea that you think is actually valid? So, you know, there's in uh, the startup world, there's different levels of funding. So there's seed f- funding, which is like just to get you off the ground, just to get started. And then there's angel investor round. So that's usually um, people, rich folks who like to help in uh, entrepreneurs yep. get their first yep. companies off the ground. And that's usually um, in the few hundred thousand dollar range. Mm-hmm. And then after that is what's called, um, then you get venture capitalists, which are rapacious capitalists who want to take a giant chunk of your company. <laughs> uh, that's, and then they raise something called a series A round, which is like, you know, serious money, usually in the few million, million dollar range. And then it goes from there onwards there. So yeah, if you would probably want to raise a seed round when you have your minimum viable product and some users. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you want to get to that stage and you have a really good idea and you can convince someone foolish enough to invest in you at that point. So for my startup, I'm probably going to start now, if it's, it's going to be about out in about a month, I'm going to build up some users and I'm going to shop it around to investors and see if anyone's interested in it. This is your news feed. Uh, yeah. Do you want to quickly talk about that? It's an interesting idea. Yeah. So I actually got the idea from foam. Um, you know, the, I love medical Twitter. It's the best thing in the world except when Trump tweets something. Um, and then all, everyone disappears and all I get is Trump crap on my Twitter feed. And there's also a lot of good YouTube channels like MedCram has been, um, I think Dr. Seholt has been putting a lot of great content every day on coronavirus. He's been going over papers and everything like that. I just wanted like a feed with just that stuff. So I made a tool that can um, you can make a custom list of all your favorite foam and med Twitter people all across Twitter, um, Instagram, YouTube, and whatever, use have a social media, I've got it indexed in there. And make your own custom feed with that. It's I can show you right now, but it's really buggy and I don't want the public to see it yet. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Fair enough. You, you go to your feed, you might get like news from India in there. <laughs> no, that's a fascinating idea because instead of just hopping around in different social media feeds. And- Basically, it's like, it's like a love letter to Twitter. Like, this is what you could be. <laughs> Uh, but sadly, you're not. <laughs> that probably never will be. Never will be, yeah. Oh, yeah. One other thing uh, I know you had mentioned before is you're concerned about a lack of innovation capacity in medicine and, and publishing ability. Oh, yeah. This is especially in this crisis. Like, like I met this, um, I don't know if you've followed him on Twitter, but like this uh, community GI, a doctor named Farid Jalali. So like in February, he was trying to get people to listen to his theory that, you know, this COVID causes a huge... Uh, endotheliolitis and it causes a cascade a thrombotic cascade yeah i have and, heard about this yep. yeah so and he's been on um, em crit and i think on rebel em talking about it and a lot of it was um a lot i think he had connections with doctors in iran and um i remember seeing in iran, i'm on the critical care uh, medicine listserv the ccm listserv an iranian doctor actually noticed like you know these patients these happy hypoxemics who are just chilling with sats in the 40s you know <laughs> just with their cell phones and so, um, you know, he was working with that kind of information from CT scans. And, and the crazy thing is that he wasn't getting any um, attention. Like there's no, if you look at the journals, there's almost no journals have take papers for innovations yep. or for um, theoretical things. 
I, I had a paper published a few years ago on, um, I made a 3D printed uh, airway model and I couldn't find, I got rejected by uh, CMAJ, CGEM and Annals of EM saying that, you know, we don't show innovations in our journal. <laughs> this was before 3D printing was even mainstream. I remember you talking about this, like this is years ago now, I think, right? Three, four years ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I got it published in this uh, great group of journals called JMIR. So they're more um, into, into innovation and research. But yeah, it's it's the culture is not there. And then even if you try to propose anything, even in the middle of a virus that no one's ever seen and no one's ever studied, they'll say there's a lack of evidence for this. Like, come on, yeah. <laughs> how can there be evidence for a brand new, <laughs> brand new disease? The idea is get the ideas out right? and then study them. Exactly. And like, we've been so ignorant about viruses for so long. Like so many viruses like dengue and Marburg cause like clotting issues, yep. but they've just not been studied very well. And you know, is it too hard, uh, too hard to at least alert people so that they can um, get to know um, that this issue could be there? And I think most centers are now at least doing prophylactic and even treatment dose of uh, heparin now. Yeah. So, but overall, like especially the, I think our profession is very poor at handling handling new innovations. I think there's been a group of, I think it's been social media driven. Like, I think you've had, um, I think Syke Sadal in uh, New York and um, Ruben Strayer in New York and. Uh, Gadanoni in Italy, they've been the ones really driving a lot of the changes in practice, like proning, um, use of high flow nasal cannula instead of intubating everybody like the Chinese told us, which was wrong. Yep. <laughs> Discovery of high compliance and avoiding um, you know, patient self-induced lung injury. A lot of that is, hasn't come from literature. It's come from careful bed, bedside observation. Yeah, anecdotes, right? At least to start. Honestly, I'm, it's so much has come out in this uh, crisis that is surprising to me. That I hope you know we come out of it as a civilization a lot stronger and that uh, better prepared for you know a much worse virus than this. But uh, it's crazy, like how political things have become, especially in the United States. Yes, I mean everything is is right or left, right? Everything's pro or con. No matter what it is, everything is made to be divisive. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's it's been unfortunate for the medical world. Mask use is clearly being politicized, and uh, hydroxychloroquine use as well. And issues only compounded when we have issues with uh, data like the uh, negative trough from the Lancet. And at the time of the recording, some of the uh, issues with the data set uh, company are just coming to light. Of course, there's a massive push to publish this stuff as quickly as possible, which could uh, certainly be a double-edged sword. I think you have seen like a lot of papers that are. Um preprint papers not peer reviewed like on med archives and bioarchive. Yeah. I think that's definitely an issue, but again like if you can't get published, like you have to uh, Yeah, I, I don't know what the solution is to this. I think maybe the end result is that, you know, this social media critical community is important like, you know, foam and med twitter and these communities are crucial to this. Um this is the new peer review in a way. Yeah, no, exactly 100%. I think you see a lot of this online, a lot of the kind of the sleuthing that goes on in some of these some of these studies are, are seems to be online based or right? just Twitter communities that are getting together and, and looking through data sets. And I, I've seen, I, I follow somebody online. I forget her name right now, but she actually just, she'll actually go through data and she'll find duplicates of, of uh, Western blots and stuff from different publications where it's, it's just straight up forged from other papers. And it's just, and it, stuff like that may not be known unless uh, there's this online community that is looking into these things as a group. It's interesting. No, it's. Uh, I think you know the medical community online is is very special. And I wish more people knew um, about it. Like this is one of the bright spots of uh, the social media world. And this, you know, everything else is burning, but medical and science Twitter is really it's a really great community. I yep. think hundred percent. Great. Well, I don't know if there's anything else that uh, you think we've missed that you want to touch on. 
Um, I think, you know, um, I just say to listeners is that don't think um, if you have a great idea, you know, this is worth discussing with colleagues and uh, don't assume that it's already been thought of because especially in the medical world, people are used to taking orders and following the systems they have in place. And, you know, there's a lot of innovation to be had. Like in our department, we're trying to get off the ground a virtual ER system. Um, we, you know, we've already have colleagues at, um, at Chio and at Grand River who've shared a lot of their protocols with us. And so that's, that's that whole I step thing, you know, just, you know, it, come, come up with your idea, collaborate and share freely with people and, and put it into action and see what happens. I think that's, that approach will, will get you very far. I think that's a great message. Uh, I don't know if you'd be willing, but we could potentially see, uh, share your email address on our, our show notes. If uh, anyone would like to reach out, if that's, if that's cool with you. I think Twitter, Twitter would probably be the best. Just DM me on Twitter. My uh, DMs are open. Okay. Well, we'll make sure we include that in our, in our show notes. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Cash. That was a super interesting conversation. Thank you, Brendan. Well, have a good evening. Good luck out there. Thanks. You too. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hi, everyone. My name is Spencer Sample. I'm one of the PGY2, soon to be PGY3 residents, that has been working behind the scenes with the Mac Emerge podcast as an editor for the last few months. With July 1st coming up, there are a lot of residents out there, including myself, that are transitioning from juniors to seniors. Today, we have Dr. Joanna Dita, a senior resident who's well-known to the Residence Corner, who's in her PGY three-year in the McMaster Emergency Medicine program. So, Joanna, I was hoping that you could describe your experience transitioning from a junior to a senior resident. Yeah, that's a great question, Spencer. Thanks for having me. It's going to be interesting to be on the other side of the mic for this episode of the Residence Corner, for sure. Um, Overall, I would say the experience of transitioning from a junior to senior resident was absolutely fantastic, in my opinion. That's, of course, goes without counting the exhaustion from the call schedule. I truly believe that at the end of your critical year, you come out a stronger resident overall. You're a better leader in resuscitation. You're equipped with more procedural skills. And this involves not only knowing how to, for example, do a central line, but even troubleshoot it and how to solve those problems. You hopefully end up coming out of the third year, having more knowledge on pathophysiology and medical pathology. And more importantly, in my personal opinion, you come out a more well-rounded resident. Additionally, you gain an immense amount of independence that builds onto what you've learned and obtained during your second year of only eMERGE rotations. And lastly, you get to meet and work with fellow residents from other residency programs where you get to learn from each other, but also create some friendships. It's much easier for me now to be in a resuscitation where I know and trust the skills of my fellow, for example, anesthesia resident, as opposed to constantly having to be introduced to new teams, which can often be the case. Overall, fantastic experience. Thanks, Joanna. That's really reassuring for me to hear. Sounds like you gain a lot of important skills in that year, something I'm really looking forward to. I'm just wondering, just because everyone has a different kind of schedule, what rotations did you start on? Yeah, like you alluded to, everyone's year in PGY3 is scheduled a little bit different. Some will start off with critical care and others with electives. It really all depends on what your priorities are and a little bit about luck in terms of what rotations you get when. 
personally, I was on electives for the first part of my third year because I felt I had just spent a whole year doing Emerge rotations and I was kind of in the groove with Emerge. So I decided that was a good opportunity to go around to other emergency departments in the surrounding communities and do electives there. For personal reasons, I also happened to be planning my wedding at the time and felt that shift work during emerge rotations would be more conducive to arranging stuff around my wedding as opposed to having to do it during busy critical care rotations with the call schedule. So different for everybody. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's good to balance those things with personal uh, things as well. And if I may add, you have the option of uh, like putting in what when you want to do which rotations. And so they try to accommodate as much as possible for that. I think that's important to realize too, because going into it, if it kind of feels like it's out of your control, but it's actually more in your control than you, than you think. Absolutely. So w- would you say that the way that you did things starting off on Emerge was a positive experience for you? I would say for me, starting off with Emerge was great because I, like I said, I had just done a year of Emerge and felt very much at home. At the end of the second year um, of doing just Emerge rotations, your home being in your home service really builds up your self-esteem and confidence, I would say, as well as your knowledge base when it comes to dealing with bread and butter emergency presentations. The downside of that, however, is that I did not have the critical care skills that I then learned during the second half of the year, of my third year, that is. So third year is a little bit of a reality check because the scary part, which you don't realize while you're in second year, is that you don't know what you don't know. And when you get to third year, you are now thinking about that clinical presentation that you thought was oh so simple of heart failure exacerbation. That's not so simple anymore once you've learned a little bit more around um, the disease pathology during your critical care year. So I would say overall, third year is also fantastic for giving you a reality check to how complex medicine is. And you're truly always going to be learning in this type of uh, career that we have chosen. Yeah, I definitely see what you mean there. I think even getting to the end of second year for myself, I'm having a lot of experiences, like you mentioned, not knowing what you don't know and having these big realizations that things aren't always the way that you thought that they were. Mm hmm. Do you think that by the time you got to the ICU rotations that you were uh, more prepared than you thought or less prepared than you thought you would be or just as prepared as you thought you would be maybe? Yeah, great question. I would divide that into two components, two parts rather. I would say um, there was the is the part about what I thought was the case and what I found out to be the case. So what I thought was that I was not as prepared because you always get nervous and you're like, I'm going to be on call by myself in the critical care unit. I've only done so many central lines. Am I going to be able to do them independent? Or am I going to be able to intubate somebody without having my fellow eMERGE staff now just be on the background and be there in case I need them in the middle of the night in an ICU call? So I would say overall, most of us think we're less prepared going into it. The reality of it is, as FRCP, emergency medicine trained residents, I would say we're more prepared than the average person when it comes to dealing with the critical care part of these critical care rotations. And so the stuff that really matters overnight, which is resuscitating a patient, being an expert in airway management, as well as learning how to do procedures, some more than more important than others, are all skills that are well within our roof and we're well prepared for. 
Now, I would not say that starting the year, you do feel comfortable or should feel comfortable with all of those things, because obviously this is why it's a five-year residency program and a lifelong learning career. But you certainly have more skills and procedures under your belt than the average resident going through the critical care rotation, your co-residents, I would say. Thanks for that. That's, <laughs> you've got me reassured a little bit just with, with hearing you say that. So Yeah, it's a nice. nice surprise for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we just talked about some of the positive things. Is there any specific difficulties that you had when you were in this PGY3 year or any rotation specifically? I think in no matter what rotation you go through, whether it's home service rotation or off-service rotation, you're often going to run into challenges and difficulties, some that you may have planned for and others that you may have not anticipated for. Particularly for me, one of the challenges rather than difficulties, I would say, was advocating for your skill set as an emergency medicine resident in certain rotations. I just spoke in the previous questions how I felt more comfortable with my procedural skills, my resuscitation skills. And again, this only came with time as I did more and more ICU rotations. But certain rotations, for example, where they don't always or very often have emergency medicine residents rotating through it, it's hard for the allied health team to know what your skill set and comfort level is. In general, that tends to be the case in most off-service rotations as we first start off the block, where obviously you're getting to know the service, the team, and they're getting to know you. But in some rotations, like ICU, where they always work with eMERGE residents and are well aware of their skill set and limitations, for that matter, it was much easier to integrate into them. Unlike other rotations, like for example, CCU, where they don't always have eMERGE residents and they typically have their residents on call with a fellow. And because of seniority, they will often gravitate towards calling the fellow first for emergencies that may very well sometimes be more so under the expertise of the eMERGE resident than the off-service fellow who's on. In other times, totally appropriate. For example, if you were to call me in the middle of the night for a cardiac emergency that I was not prepared for, Absolutely agree. Not in my skill set. Try to learn about it, obviously, while I was in the rotation. But there's other times where you felt like you were not recognized for some of the things that you knew how to do and you had to get to know the team and allow the team to get to know you before you could get to that point. The next challenge that I probably had, and this is more so a challenge that I think all of us will have, not just in critical care, but more so as we transition from junior resident to senior resident, was finding the right balance between sounding confident and competent as a team leader, let's say in resuscitation, versus sounding bossy, for example, or cocky. I know from sort of personal experience and speaking to my fellow PGY3 uh, female and male colleagues that that is a shared concern sometimes. This was probably a very personal challenge and I may have had as I try to be very respectful of other team members, whether that's in resuscitation or not. But also as a person, I'm not very shy to be loud and clear when needed and when I truly believe it's within my knowledge and my skill set. This always came with a caveat that I had to be pretty confident in my skill set and my knowledge while still knowing what my limitations were, which there were many times where I had to be the shy one or the quiet one. Yeah, it sounds like kind of both of those things are with respect to some sort of balancing act where you need to kind of balance your skills and balance 
the way that you come off in resuscitation. So, mm-hmm. and I'm sure mm-hmm. a lot of residents are feeling this way by the end of their PGY two, probably merge rotations, where you hopefully are at a position where you're feeling more comfortable with managing some of the bread and butter clinical presentations in the emergency room, and certainly are getting more comfortable and more experienced with leading arrests and codes and running ACLS algorithms or resuscitating a patient. Do do sometimes in residency, at, at least when I was doing off-service things, I felt like just as I was getting used to a rotation or getting used to a team, I would switch to a different rotation. Did, did you find that that was a problem for you or did you feel like you got just enough out of it and then were able to move on to the next thing well? I think a month long is pretty good for getting used to and comfortable and learning some new skills and learning some new pathophysiology uh, for a particular rotation. Um, I would say rotations like ICU, it certainly helps to have two blocks. And I think it's all a little bit of about personal preference, right? Like some people will love critical care and they'll want to do more. And other people will say, you know what, this was good enough for me. I have enough experience. I'm done with it and that's okay. So it's just a little bit Depends a little bit on every particular person. Uh, Overall, I think in general, as residents, we always feel like we're constantly changing jobs, right? From one month to another or one block to another, rather. And so that's part of the challenges of being a resident. And it was really nice sometimes to go back now, for example, in some of my critical care services where I'm now in a different rotation, but I go back and I see patients from that unit. And it's nice to run into colleagues and friends and have made those connections and be able to speak about their care from a critical care perspective in addition to whatever service I'm on or I'm looking after them. Well, thanks. Thanks for highlighting some of those difficulties. I think it will be nice for people to kind of be aware of those things going into it, but also maybe be able to listen back and realize that other people experience the same thing. So I think that's very helpful for everyone around us. I'm just wondering, so just to move on to the next question, do you have any suggestions to people who might be in my position just about to transition from a junior to a senior? I would say the biggest thing is honestly to just be excited. I recognize we're all a little nervous starting it. I was there. I was in the same position. But the biggest and most important thing, I think, is to try to learn as much as you can. There will be rotations that you will like more than others for sure. But if you go into it with an open mind, I think you'll end up enjoying the rotation no matter what. And some rotations, you will learn things that are more relevant to your emergency medicine practice and others you won't. So if you find yourself in a rotation where you feel like, okay, why am I learning this? This is useless information. I'm just providing a service. Then step back and say, okay, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to provide this service. So why don't I focus on learning the things that are relevant to me? So I often found myself in particular cases or patient presentation that we were talking about with a team, I would literally ask the staff and say, okay, so from an acute care perspective, if this patient's present to me in the emergency department, what are some of the considerations I should think about? And so I found that I learned more that way and I was able to integrate myself better than just say, oh, this is too much detail and things that I will never need to know as an emergency medicine physician. The other thing that I would say is honestly find other more senior residents and staff 
certainly within the emergency medicine department, but also others who can be your backup early on as a senior. So you can practice the team leader skills while you have someone right behind you. Just like in the emergency room, we are often lucky that we have an emergency doctor available to us and sometimes right next to us. I would say find and seek those opportunities during your off-service rotation. If I'm on a service and you're on with me, grab me so you can do the central line. Not because you don't know how to do an internal jugular central line, but because you want to learn from as many people as possible about tricks and tips and how to troubleshoot problems. And they can then teach you, like, if this went wrong or if you were in this situation, what would you do? Because it's better to know about them before they happen than to be stuck in the middle of the night by yourself. Yeah, that's really good advice, actually. It, I guess the moral of that is, you can correct me if I'm wrong, to be open to learning as much as you can and to seek out learning opportunities where you can from the people around you, from all the cases around you. Even if you feel like you can't take anything away from something, there's always something that you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this this certain thing that comes with near the end, I would say, and maybe this is just personal and my fellow colleagues in the same year don't share this with me, but there's a certain comfort that comes sort of near the end of your critical career where you are completely okay with saying, I don't know about this. Can you teach me about this? You know, and I feel like we're often are trying to impress others and trying to show that we are capable and we're good residents and we're hardworking and we're good doctors. But there's a certain point that you reach where you say, you know what? I don't know about this, no matter how simple this is. Can you teach me about this? I think that's, that's something very good to be able to identify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the last thing that we can talk about is if you had to make the transition from a junior to a senior again, is there anything that you would do differently? I would say there's two things that I would slightly change. Number one, third year is a busy year with call schedule. So if I could do it over again, I would try to prioritize my sleep more. I often found myself trying to see family or friends or be productive on post-call days, and I only ended up being exhausted the next day and falling more and more behind on my sleep. The second thing I would try and do more of is get into a routine about how you're going to study or learn around your rotation. I did try to learn about cases or topics I was seeing in the rotation. Similar to in Emerge, when you finish a shift, you want to try and review one topic or one patient case presentation. However, because I was also trying to keep up with the academic half-day topics and learning around them and making notes, I often found that I was falling behind in either one or the other. Your rotations, unfortunately, don't overlap with academic half-day. So you just have to get into a good routine about what learning to prioritize. I constantly have a list of what are the things I wanted to look up from the rotation and the patients I had seen. Certainly the topics that I felt were very important for an emergency care perspective, but unfortunately was unable to always do that and felt like I was a little bit behind constantly. Yeah, that's one of the hard things I think about having this job, but also a job where you're where you're learning constantly and having to keep up with material constantly. It's hard to balance doing your job and getting better at your job, but also learning things that aren't always exactly relevant to what you're doing at that time. So that's really helpful. And I also agree, post-call days are very dangerous. They seem like these days where you have so much time to do things, but really it's probably the best best thing to do would be to sleep and kind of relax or maybe do a little bit of studying on those days. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like I really, really needed to prioritize that more. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I think like a little small tidbit that can make a big difference for a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming here to talk to us about this. I think that everything we've talked about will be very helpful for people out there, mostly because I found it very helpful and I, and I'm about to make this transition as well. So I felt very reassured by everything you had to say, and I think others out there will be as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And just remember everyone, the rest of the seniors who have done this already are always there to help out. So reach out, please. Yeah. And I've already, I've already talked to some of the seniors around me and they've been very supportive. So it's a very supportive environment and I really appreciate you being a part of that as well. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. All right. Hello, everybody. And this is Teresa Chan again on Teaching That Counts. We uh, have an awesome special edition of this because we have a guest resident today. She might become a regular, but for now, we're going to call her a guest so we don't have to redo the intro. Um, Krista, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks so much for having me, Aline and Teresa. I'm Krista Dowhouse, and I'm a second-year family medicine resident. Right now, I'm a resident in the Kitchener-Waterloo campus of McMaster, and I'm a soon-to-be PGY3 in Emerge in Kitchener-Waterloo. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, We're so excited to have you here, Um, and it sounds like you've picked the topic that we're going to talk about today, so we're going to talk about feedback, right? Aline, what does that word feedback bring to you? Like we've talked about before, what kind of energy does it bring you? Nightmares. I think it brings nightmares. Nightmares. Yeah, I know, right? Like it, it just feels like a lot of the time what happens is I'm always so worried. Like what is the resident going, how are they, they going to respond? Like what are they thinking? Like I, 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 I like get so stressed out about giving feedback because I don't know if I'm going to make someone cry or if they're going to be like that wasn't harsh enough and I can never make them happy. Oh, yeah. It's not just the giving the feedback in the moment. It's the when you get home and you give yourself feedback on the feedback and you do exactly that. And you're like, did I give too much? Did I give too little? Did I smile enough? Yeah. Was I supportive enough? Are they going to write me up? Or like, I'm not sure what's going on, you know? Really, Uh, the only paper that's important in this area is the one that says that if you give cookies while you uh, ask for an evaluation, you get a higher score. So now I just give cookies and smile. (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. Pizza might, we haven't done the randomized control trial on pizza yet, but I, I bet you pizza would also work. But, uh, you know, like it's one of those things where we truly do need to think about how we integrate all of this feedback into our lives because it, it truly is something. So, Krista, like, what did you want to talk about for feedback? So, first of all, it's really reassuring and disarming really to hear you hear your guys's side of the story um, and hear that you're thinking so much about how you're giving feedback to learners. My main thing that I wanted to talk about today was putting the onus on the learner to view feedback or receiving feedback as more of an active process. I know 
myself in the past, I've often looked at feedback as this passive process that's just going to happen to me at the end of some mm. or most of my shifts. Yeah. So it's kind of like you're like feeling like you're a feedback victim. Yes. Like it's going to be a thrust upon you. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But you don't exactly. think about it that way anymore, you think? I don't. No. Okay. So oh, and it's tell really me more. Made, yeah. So um, I think it's helpful to look at feedback as a process that's not only active, but something that as learners engaging in and actually requesting. And just that simple mind shift turns it into something that is in our control. And I think that's something that learners and humans just prefer in general. Us as learners, we can't control necessarily the feedback that we get and we can't control how it's given to us, but we can control how we receive it. So I think that this is empowering for learners and it's certainly been empowering for me. And this has actually been backed up in the literature um, that shows that feedback seeking behavior and an active approach to receiving feedback is associated with greater job satisfaction. So that's me nerding out. for All right. Excellent. I love it. Uh, what, what uh, I know that you've done some research on this. So um, uh, in the digging around that you did online, what were some of the kind of top hits that uh, we should read? Yeah. So uh, a great book that uh, Teresa, you actually recommended to me was, uh, a book called Thanks for the Feedback by Stone and Heen. Yeah, that's um, a classic. Thanks yeah. for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. So it's it's really playfully written and a very easy read that you can kind of just pick and choose chapters from. All right, so Stone and Heen, I love that book. It's totally like a new classic because it's like just come out recently. It's not even a decade old yet. And I think that it's like a must read. Um, for most people who are in the business of wanting to get better, which hopefully is all of us in medicine. Can you give us some take-home points, Krista, from uh, some of the readings that you've done? And what are some of the things that people can do to like seek feedback better? Basically, I distilled this down for myself into like three critical actions uh, of receiving feedback. The first is simple, and it's ask for the feedback. So we just need to make a routine of asking for feedback at the end of every, every single shift. The easiest way of doing this is just to say, hey, what feedback do you have for me from today? But maybe a more helpful way of doing it is prior to your shift, doing a little bit of reflection and actually pre-requesting some topic that you'd like feedback on that you've been struggling with. So say, you know, I'm I struggle sometimes with being concise about my discharge instructions to patients. Could you just observe me doing this once on shift and give me some feedback? And then also do some reflection throughout your shift on things you think you did well and things you think you could do better so that you're prepared to engage in the feedback discussion. So it's not just that one way street. Okay. Yeah. And that really resonates with me. I think we've talked previously about setting objectives, but it's like definitely a mark that you're becoming a senior learner when you're the one that's kind of reflecting and saying, look, here's my objectives for the shift. Here's what I want you to help me work on. And here's what I want to feedback on. But yet I've already thought about what I actually did and you can help adjust me. That is definitely a package that I would really think that, a, you know, an awesome CCFPEM resident like you're going to be is going to walk into shifts uh, feeling that way. And I think that that's 
pretty awesome that you've distilled that first uh, like package, right? That's a really critical action, like reflect and ask for feedback that resonates with you. I like it too, because I've had uh, moments where I've pulled in a learner to, let's say you just pull them in for a cool procedure or something like that. They do a reduction or some suturing or something like that. At the end of it, I kind of catch them. I'm like, hey, can I give you some feedback? And they're like, nah, man, I'm good. I got my eval for the day. And I just feel then like that the door is closed for you to give any type of insight or, or, or any type of coaching really in that moment. And so asking for it really shows that you're interested and it actually demands it of your preceptor as well. So it really creates that conversation and it doesn't feel like I'm pushing it on you and giving you things that you maybe don't want to hear. Excellent. Okay, Krista, I'm going to ask you to do number two now. What's the second thing? That's the second critical action that we have to do. So the second critical action comes right after you have received the feedback. So once it's spoken to you, your job is not done. The process is not done. You basically have a couple options at that point. I'm sure we've all experienced both of these outcomes. One is to become defensive or resist the feedback because it can be very uncomfortable sometimes. It can be painful, just like learning can be painful sometimes. So we can shut down or argue it or justify our actions. Instead, we could just be curious about the feedback. So we can ask questions about it, regardless of whether you think it's fair or right or wrong. Just say, oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. Or could you give me a specific example of when you observed that action that you'd like me to work on. I'm wondering if you guys could tell me some experiences you've had with learners that have chosen one of those two paths and how you responded to that and how that colored the rest of the feedback discussion. I think it's totally true that if you give the learner a piece of feedback, even if it's well-intentioned, if they shut down, it really closes the door for me to feel like I can give them more. And so I really like that language of I'm curious. I kind of steal it from the sim literature with the whole advocacy inquiry line of questioning. And I really like this idea of flipping that where you receive a piece of feedback and then ask for it back. And we have some great residents in our program who when you give them a piece of feedback, they push me back and they say, you know what, can you be more, more specific about that? What did you actually see? What did you actually observe? What's your concern here? Like I'm thinking of a case I had where, you know, there was a procedure where, you know, the reduction didn't go so well. We were trying to um, actually dislocation, it was a hip dislocation we we're trying to put back in. And I was kind of commenting on, you know, the sedation wasn't adequate, the setup wasn't great. And, you know, the learner really flipped the script on me and said, you know, walk me through what was the moment in your mind where you knew the procedure was going to be unsuccessful. And I was like, man, that is so slick. So I really love this phrasing. It really borrows from the sim literature, which already tells us that these type of questions um, inspire more responses. And it also helps you get that deeper feedback that you need to up your game. Yeah, it, it really resonates for me because I think uh, I love Brene Brown. You no, know? I think everyone's a Netflix binging like every night right now or every day right now. So uh, she has a Netflix special. Brene Brown is like a social worker turned PhD scientist that does a lot of work on vulnerability and, you know, putting yourself out there. I think Krista, that stuff might be your next reading <laughs> that I would suggest and or watching, I guess, in this case. And uh, And to be completely honest, I think, uh, flipping the script really helps you understand the other person's point of view. Because sometimes what Brene Brown kind of talks to us about is that we're telling a story to ourselves about what's going on. And it actually has nothing to do with what's going on. So let's say Aleem's giving me feedback on my teaching. Uh, and he just was happened to overlap and saw me give a lecture or something like that. And he's got like a couple of things he want to give me as feedback. And uh, as soon as he starts talking, it's like he says the dreaded words, 
can I give you some feedback? And it's like, it's almost as bad as the emerged doctor version of that, which is, do you remember that patient? You know, <laughs> like it, you just get like the chills and you just like feel off. Right. And so what happens is that uh, as soon as it's triggered, I'm already telling myself, things like, oh my gosh, Aline thinks I'm a horrible teacher. Oh my gosh, what's going on here? He's going to like kick me off of the clerkship roster, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's also a bad thing. You know, like all those things are going on in our head um, and it has nothing to do with it. He might've just said, you know, next time, can I just show you how to like work the AV better so that you don't have to like keep running back to the podium and uh, you know, like we can, you know, change things around so it's easier for you to navigate the room. And uh, instead of, uh, if I just wait and listen uh, and actually like figure out what it is that people want to say rather than assuming I know, right? Because we all know what happens when you assume something about someone else. When you make a mistake, right? And you um, make a fool out of yourself and you end up telling yourself this story and um, not being receptive to the actual feedback. And now there's all this cognitive load that's interfering with what they were trying to actually teach you or explain to you. And so I think that that's definitely another part of it. So I, I love it. Flip the script and be curious about the feedback. So that's number two. All right, Krista, number three. So the last critical action is following up on the feedback. In line with the principles of learning in general, we need spaced repetition. We need to reinforce the things we learned. So the feedback you get, you need to reinforce it. One easy way to do this is when you go home, summarize the feedback. Sometimes I'll come home and discuss the feedback with my partner and say, hey, look, this is what I was told today. This is how I think that I might be able to work on it. Or you could write it down in your iPhone or on, on paper. Another interesting way of doing it that I have recently tried is the next shift, ask for feedback on the same topic from a different preceptor. So not only does this reinforce it, but it also gives you a different perspective on that same topic. And they may catch extra things that you could work on that the other preceptor didn't catch. Yeah, I really like that. We've talked about the difference between staff preferences and stuff like that before in the show. So uh, for sure, that resonates with me. You also wouldn't just be looking at preferences. You just might be looking at different experiences, different lenses. I bet you Alim and I who are very different people. We might experience the world very differently um, and our insights on a given topic might be very different. And so uh, asking for feedback from two different people would definitely give you more of a holistic lens on yourself. I think that totally makes sense to me. Uh, you know, Krista, one of the big points that we're, we're pulling out here, I think, is as a learner, how you can take charge of this process. Um, how have you managed to, to work through that initial response when you hear feedback um, to really depersonalize it and, and to really start to, to hear what people are saying? How do you really start to integrate what, what people are telling you into your practice? The first thing that I do is, and this kind of loops back to what Teresa was saying about all of the preconceived ideas and stories we have about the feedback we're about to receive. So something that I've had to work on that has changed the way that I receive feedback and integrate it into my practice is this idea of learning versus acceptance and realizing uh, that they're really need to be at odds with one another. So in medical school, I often viewed feedback as 
they don't like me or they don't accept me or I'm not a very good student. So this is why I'm getting feedback so that I can change and be better. I've now reframed that to say, this preceptor likes me enough and believes in me enough to be giving me feedback. And that mind shift just automatically opens me up to being much more receptive to it. It seems like it's the idea of the educational alliance. Like you feel like the teachers are on your side as opposed to before it was like almost adversarial. Is that correct? Exactly. I like that too, because it separates the person from the message. Because I think that you can have this breakdown where, you know, we all have bad days or bad cases. And sometimes you're the staff or the student who's in those moments. And it's okay to take a step back and say, just because that person saw me at my weakest doesn't mean that they think less of me. Because at the end of the day, we're all colleagues. And especially here, we're trying to build this really close-knit community. And I think we have that, uh, especially among our residents. And there was no role in feedback, then we wouldn't have this whole mentorship-based system. We wouldn't have so many years of clerkship and residency and training and post-grad and all that. Um, and I love the sports analogies too, right? Because you'd never be a, you know, a baller who goes out and shoots every day and, and doesn't have anyone watch your shot. It just doesn't make sense. I always revenge uh, Aleem when he gives sports analogies. So I'm going to revenge him <laughs> with, uh, it's like in Harry Potter, right? Like Professor Snape was the harshest on them all, but he actually probably cared the most, right? And so um, you can always tell yourself the script on the inside that, oh my gosh, this teacher hates me. Uh, or you can flip the script and be like, wow, this person really is spending like an hour talking to me after they could have gone home to see their kids and their spouse and everything. Um, they must really, really want to, like help me get better, right? Like you can think about it as an alignment or you can think about it as an adversarial thing. The other thing that I do that helps me integrate it into my practice is the simple act of asking for it all the time actually acts as sort of a desensitization process. So each time I get feedback, I'm okay and I didn't fail. And so basically that process over and over eventually teaches me that feedback is okay and I'm going to survive through it. Yeah, I love that. It's it's very similar to the idea of right now with all the COVID-19 testing, like if we only taste test the cases that go to ICU, then we're going to think it's a very deadly disease. But if you test all the time and you realize there's a bunch of people actually probably running around the community completely asymptomatic and it's actually not that bad for those people, it's probably similar to like that kind of sensitivity specificity problem, right? If you only wait till you get feedback when things are really going off the rails, uh, then you'll think that feedback's a horrible experience. But if you get feedback and sometimes even get good feedback, that's amazing, right? Um, so I think that that's definitely something that as a clinician, that, that totally makes sense for me. I'm thinking of Snape. And, you know, I really just reading that book, I was just left thinking that he just had imposter syndrome. Krista, tell me about imposter syndrome, because I feel like that really plays a role in the conversation we're having here. It definitely does. So for those of you that don't know, but we probably all know as learners, medical students, residents, physicians, imposter syndrome is a process in which we basically doubt our own accomplishments or we think we're not worthy for, of what we've accomplished. And this is something that actually makes receiving positive feedback difficult for us. When we receive positive feedback, if we're struggling with this, Sometimes we'll just assume that the feedback giver isn't being genuine or when somebody gives us positive feedback, we haven't actually quite earned it. You know, I, I totally think that's such a real problem in medicine. Like all the time growing up, my mom would tell me I was special and I just felt like you're just saying that because you're my mom. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I mean, let's be honest. I think uh, you and I had very different uh, childhood experiences. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and it can be different, right? Like uh, you can you can think about things differently. It can be the internal script that you set for yourself. And so, I think exactly thinking about the stories that you tell yourself during that reflection. Uh, that can be really helpful in terms of priming yourself to be ready for feedback. Because once you've organized your own thinking and you know where you stand about yourself, it's a lot easier to stand up and know whether someone's feedback is on point or if it's a little bit off, but okay, fine. To summarize, I think I just wanted to bring through kind of like the three points, Krista, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, okay? So first was reflect and ask for feedback that will resonate with you. Uh, number two is flip the script, be curious about the feedback, ask for more and be more specific in terms of what you're hoping to understand. And number three is record and review the feedback periodically so that you can really get to the center of it and maybe loop it back around as part of the reflection. You hit the nail on the head. Excellent. Good feedback. Yay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. If you have new ideas, we'd love to hear them. Or maybe you want to be on our show even better. Write us an email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge out! <laughs>